podcast about all things anthropology and archaeology. We are your hosts, Jill, Lulu, and Kelsey. And we are very excited to have another interview today with the lovely Kaylee Spears. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Kaylee is an administration manager and curator at Keinachiwanung Historical Center, also known as Manitou Mounds. And Kaylee, we're so excited to have you with us today. We're excited to hear all about your job, you, uh, what you've done, and hopefully if I pronounced the name of your historical center correctly, please let us know. <laughs> if you want to start by giving us a brief introduction about who you are, where you're from, and how you got to be where you are now. Sure, yeah. Uh, you... So many questions. <laughs> Tell us <laughs> your <laughs> entire life story. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, you got the name like pretty good. It's, uh, it is a challenge for a lot of people. I had to practice it kind of like at home before I was comfortable pronouncing it. Uh, now it's just like nothing. But yeah, Kanachwanung Historical Center. Uh, that's where I work. It is located on Treaty 3 territory. So that's where I'm coming at you guys live. And we're on Treaty 7. Oh, yes. Yes. <laughs> um, I'm actually originally from Winnipeg, which, of course, is Treaty 1 territory and homeland of the Métis Nation. So I lived, grew up there. And then I lived in Thunder Bay for a few years as well for school. And yeah, I am the, the curator, the manager at Kanachwanung Historical Center. So we're located in Stratton, Ontario, which is in northwestern Ontario, which for people are probably still like, I don't know where that is. So basically, we're geographically kind of like right in between Winnipeg and Thunder Bay. Uh, we're like just on the border between Canada and the United States. And the center, it's uh, owned and operated by Rainy River First Nations. So it is a First Nations community that I work for. Awesome. <laughs> and do you want to start off maybe explaining a little bit about your education and what courses you took and what programs you completed to have your current role? Yeah, for sure. So myself, probably like quite a few people, uh, I had no idea what anthropology or archaeology was until I was in my first year of university. So I did my undergraduate degree at the University of Winnipeg. They actually have a pretty fantastic anthropology program there. met a lot of amazing people that I'm still in touch with. But yeah, my brother, actually, I owe him kind of my my career path because he suggested that I take some some courses in anthropology in my first year. And I did, having no idea what I was getting myself into. So I actually started more on the cultural anthropology side, but then slowly discovered archaeology and just became hooked with that and eventually decided to major in it. And so I did end up doing a Bachelor of Arts honors in anthropology and also with a I also majored in international development studies as well at the same time. And kind of at the same time, I think the last couple years of my undergraduate degree, I also started volunteering at the Manitoba Museum with Lee Sims, who if for anyone who does like prairie archaeology, you've definitely heard that name. He's since retired and actually moved out to the West Coast, but uh, he was such an amazing mentor and teacher to me. And so, yeah, it was sort of in the time that I started volunteering there, then I actually started working at the Manitoba Museum as well. I worked like front desk stuff. I did educational stuff. And then I also worked in the archaeology department with Kevin Brownlee and met some awesome people there and realized that I just really loved working in museums. 
And uh, it was Lee and then some of my profs at the University of Winnipeg that really encouraged me to to pursue a master's. I had never really considered that, never considered higher education. But yeah, so they encouraged me to do that. So I applied to Lakehead University, which is in Thunder Bay, and got into the master's program there and took me... (laughs) Many, many years to to finish that degree. I think I'm one of the four years master's people, but it happens. So yeah, I was doing that for, for several years and loved it. My, uh, my thesis was focused on doing organic residue analysis on small and miniature pottery vessels. So these are ones found archaeologically from sites both in northwestern Ontario and northern Manitoba. So they are indigenous-made pottery vessels, and yeah, I analyzed those doing a bunch of different uh, chemical analyses to see whether we could kind of better understand them at all. They're like a very kind of not well understood piece of material culture in the archaeological record. Yeah. And then basically through through my master's, again, met some amazing people. (laughs) And uh, it was some of my professors uh, there that had actually told me about a job opening at Kanachawanang. And uh, so I applied and that was just over three years ago now. And yeah, so I've been here ever since. I started off not as the curator, I started off helping with collection stuff and they hired me on to help with some repatriation initiatives as well. And then I just sort of eventually, eventually somehow fell into the management role here. But uh, yeah, I love it. Awesome. (laughs) So what does a sort of typical day look like for you then in your role or maybe how that's sort of changed from your older roles to what you're doing now? Yeah, it's... uh, So working in a smaller museum, like we are a rural museum, like we're actually, we're fairly large still in comparison. Like, you know, there are some small rural museums and little towns that are like, they have one volunteer and that's all they have. So we're definitely more substantial than than that, thankfully. But because it is still a smaller museum, when you're in sort of the leadership role, like myself, when you're the curator, the manager, you end up overseeing everything. So basically, you know, the budget, programming, maintenance of the center, uh, exhibits, collections. We also have a gift shop and a restaurant here. So all of that are the things that I oversee, which was pretty terrifying at first, but I do love it. I have a really awesome team here. But so yeah, basically your day-to-day changes so drastically. I do a lot of grant writing. That's definitely one of my kind of main things. Um, there is a lot of admin work as well as, yeah, just overseeing the the amazing employees and stuff. But yeah, so that's what I, I, I love about it. But it's also challenging because in a smaller museum, it's just, you know, you do have to be a jack of all trades. Like there are just so many things you have to wear all the different hats, basically, because you are overseeing all those things as opposed to in a bigger museum, For example, when, you know, if you're the curator, that means you're just sort of, you're just kind of focusing on the collection in that particular (laughs) department and whatnot. Whereas here, it's, yeah, it's it's definitely more significant than that, so. Wow. So in your role, do you, you have an active museum there as well as outreach or what all does your center sort of curate for the local area? Yeah. Yeah. So as I I think I said in my introduction, the center is owned by Rainy River First Nations. So it's a Treaty 3 Anishinaabe community. So they have operated the center since it opened back in the 90s. Uh, But of course, like they have been the stewards of this land for generations. 
And uh, so this center, we are a historical center. So we have a whole museum. We have exhibits. We also have a collection space with over 20,000 different objects and artifacts. So that does include donated items. So we do have clothing. We have lots of regalia, so some jingle dresses and stuff. And then the main bulk of our collection is actually from archaeological digs that were done on site back in the 70s by Dave Arthurs. So these were digs of the uh, village sites um, on our property. Because yeah, I'm not actually sure if I've mentioned, but our center is on the grounds of, uh, we have the largest concentration of Indigenous burial mounds in North America on our site here. So the main, yeah, the main reason for the existence of this center is to protect, preserve, present both the history and culture of Rainy River First Nations, and then, of course, protecting and stewarding the burial mounds on the site as well. So, yeah, that's, that's kind of a whole element of it, too. So we have the center here, we have our collections, we have our exhibits, but then we have this whole extensive trail system that has about 20 burial mounds, as well as just a history of archaeological sites. There's multiple village sites, and, and there's an Anglican cemetery. There's just, yeah, a ton of history here. So that's... It's just everything we do is all about, yeah, protecting, preserving, presenting that history, that culture. Protecting, preserving, presenting. Awesome. <laughs> so <laughs> I love that. And the so outreach and engagement with mm. community and youth is an aspect of your job then in your role? Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, so we do a ton of outreach and that's both like within the community of Rainy River First Nations like that's always kind of our our main goal is to create programming and and stuff for the community that does own the center but we also are it's it's also more than that like we also do programming for all of the schools in this region as well as we're really trying to set up the center to be like a repository of information and knowledge and stuff for all of treaty three as well so yeah like we generally generally we're actually open year-round our busier season is is spring summer so from may like kind of mother's day to thanksgiving is generally kind of our busier season because we do guided tours like of the center as well as on the trails and we do teach people the history of the the burial mounds and occupations on site and the history because there have been people living on the site for 8,000 years and stuff so we do explain that whole history here to schools to other communities and everything and awesome and what's your favorite part of your job oh it's hard to say there there are a lot like what I love about working in in museums and then also in a museum like this that is a bit smaller is just and also again what's challenging about it is just like all the different things that you get to do like sort of there's just a lot of creative freedom and whatnot and thankfully there are quite a few grants out there so we're able to apply for grants and then do special projects and whatnot so for example the community basically like so regarding the burial mounds there's not a lot of like actual written information on them. Some of the only publications come from like white archaeologists and stuff like that. And it just is completely missing any of the, the community's perspective. And so we were actually able to apply for a grant to do a whole oral history project here. So that's being run by a band member that we hired on. And so he's yeah conducting interviews. And it's actually expanded even to more than just information on the burial mounds. It's It's turned into just a whole kind of community oral history project and, and whatnot. So videos and pictures, we're doing interviews and stuff like that. So it's just amazing to be able to work directly with 
this community and be able to do projects like that that like help them to to preserve their their heritage and everything so yeah i have lots of favorite parts awesome. <laughs> yeah perfect so i guess that kind of ties into like what would success sort of look like in your role and i guess it seems like you're kind of already getting there meeting it like reach and all that but yeah like what i guess would you foresee like in the future, some goals that you would really love to accomplish in your current position? or Yeah, there's a lot. And it's so working somewhere like this as well. It's it's really interesting. And especially being a like a person with white background, like my ancestry is, is white European. So colonizer background and stuff. And then coming into this space, like knowing that I for a long time that I wanted to work in museums and then coming into this space that is already an indigenized space where it's like museums kind of the legacy of museums and even museums current day there's still so much colonial history and stuff attached to them so coming into the space that's completely different that is you know already indigenized in a lot of ways and stuff like success here is so much different than in a lot of other places like for here as much as you know it's awesome for myself personally in my career my personal growth to work somewhere like this for me, like success in a place like this is just all about, you know, my team and doing things that, again, those like three, the, our mandate is protect, preserve, present. So kind of all everything we do revolves around that. And so, yeah, being able to work with the community, like the majority of my staff are band members. Uh, so being able to hire community youth, you know, mentor them, teach them my knowledge about archaeology and museums and whatnot, get them excited about their history, get them to directly work on these projects, work at the center. You know, they're, they're tour guides. They're the ones teaching people that come to the center. So really success in a place like this is it's like it's not about me. It's more about the center and the success of the center, the success of my team, getting the community, uh, you know, just uh, to engage with aspects of their culture and help them preserve it and, and all that. So it's a bit different than I feel like some other some other museums. <laughs> yeah, that sounds awesome. And I guess you kind of already touched on this, but the most challenging aspect of your job, would you um, say struggling all those? Yeah, I mean, definitely like that's the thing with museum work is if you are starting off in, in a smaller museum, which is like a really, really fantastic experience for anybody who is interested in, in going more the museum route of archaeology and anthropology. Uh, starting off in a small museum really forces you to just, you have to learn so many things. It is kind of trial by fire. You have to figure out, yeah, like how to order groceries for the restaurant in my case and figure out stock and find suppliers for the gift shop, you know, hiring people, overseeing budgets and whatnot, like grant applications. That's been a, the, a big thing that I've had to just figure out. Yeah, so that that's definitely a challenging thing about it is just like the many hats you have to wear. It's also like part of why I love it, uh, but definitely challenging, definitely overwhelming. And I'm the kind of person that likes to take on way too many projects at once. But having a good team that will keep you grounded and and help you out with stuff and, and tell you when you're taking on too much is also really helpful for that. Really important. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I have a really fantastic team here. I'm very, very lucky to, to work with all the people that I do. Yeah. It, it really makes this place just extra amazing. Good stuff. I guess I'll ask, like, <laughs> what's one common misconception that you might find for people maybe entering careers that you found to be different than what you expected or something maybe for someone entering this career that something you maybe thought was the case that maybe wasn't 
there, I feel like there's a, there's, yeah, no, it's, a, I mean, it's a hard, I, t- I know what you mean. Yeah, there are, I feel like in archaeology and anthropology and stuff in general, there are like a ton of misconceptions and then museum work, again, there are like, I mean, of course, like for anyone who's in archaeology, like one of the biggest misconceptions um, is that we work with dinosaurs, right? And like, nah, like that still comes up all the time. Like even I've worked it into our programming here where, you know, we sort of, we ask kids like, who thinks that as archaeologists, we deal with dinosaurs and, you know, there's, there's generally still some that raise their hands. So that's, Mm -hmm. that's one. And being able to teach people that like, no, we leave that to the paleontologists. We actually deal with the history of, of people and humans and is, yeah, something that's important, I think, and a big misconception. But and we also don't, like, steal things yeah. and swing through trees. Like, totally. Indiana Jones. <laughs> totally. Well, and I feel like, yeah, like, that's a big thing, too, even is... Um, and kind of the some of the less fun assumptions about, I feel like, our career as archaeologists is, I mean, acknowledging, like, the history of glorified looting in our own discipline, right? And uh, there are still a lot of misconceptions, and completely understandably by, you know, a lot of Indigenous communities that archaeologists just want to excavate things, and, you know, all the time excavate things. And that's, to me, that's more so what archaeology used to be. Now it's, you know, it's always has a purpose. It's always working with communities, engaging with communities, community-led stuff. So yeah, I feel like that's definitely still a misconception is that we just kind of like want to get in there and dig when in reality that's such a small portion of of what most archaeologists do. There's so much stuff that comes both before and after the fact, right? Like any dig that's going on nowadays in North America, especially like it needs to be done with and for the communities and on which like territory that dig is being done. And yeah, and also that, I mean, definitely a lot of people, you know, their basis for understanding what archaeology is, is like Laura Croft and (laughs) Indiana Jones, which are like, I mean, the worst archaeologists of all time. And so, yeah, just uh, misconceptions about, like, what career paths you can do as well. Like, I think not necessarily a lot of people, like, realize that you can work for governments, you can work in museums, you can, you know, teaching, obviously, professors, universities. But, like, there's just, there are actually, like, a ton of different career paths that you can take. Programming stuff, like, there's just... There's really a lot more, I think, than because it seems like such a niche thing, but it's really not like it gives you, I feel like a lot of tools to be able to take that and be extremely successful in other disciplines. I mean, lawyers, even doctors, right? Like it's just the thing with anthropology. It really just helps you to sound so lame, but like expand your mind, right? Like open your mind, be open minded about things and and just learning about different cultures and history and stuff like that. So I feel like, yeah, it's it's the best. (laughs) Awesome. I think that was the best answer to the misconception. That, we that was awesome. Yeah. So I feel like I'm rambling a lot, cool. but I like love working here so much. So I'm just like, here's all the knowledge. That it's is not, great. It's not rambling. It's just a podcast. That's all <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. true. Yeah. True. <laughs> is, yeah. yeah. So based on your job then, like what skills or qualities do you think are most valuable for someone seeking a career in museums and curation and your path? Yeah, I think there's a lot. And, you know, a lot of like, a lot of them aren't necessarily sort of those like tangible skills. Like, yes, absolutely. It's important to, you know, get experience to, you know, degrees, of course, that helps like school education, all of that is wonderful. But 
more so, I would say like some of the more important stuff that I think gets kind of discounted sometimes is just that open mindedness, that acknowledgement of your privilege, the checking your ego kind of stuff, like all of these things uh, that I think are like a, a big discussion nowadays and that really should have been you know, discussed forever, but especially if you are a person of privilege like myself, if you are a person with, you know, that colonial ancestry, that white European ancestry, working in this career path in North America, it's a little different in in other countries and stuff, but in North America, to really be conscious of those things will help you to go a lot further in these types of careers. It's it's sort of hard because those are such like conceptual things as opposed to like you know get a degree and whatever because like yes that's awesome but like some of the most successful archaeologists and and people I know like don't have PhDs and stuff you know like those are fantastic but like it's not necessarily needed to be successful in this this type of career like yes I do have a master's degree and I'm super happy that I was able to do that and I think it, it did help me grow but I think also just my ability to come into this setting acknowledge my inherent biases and stuff coming and working in this like with a first nations community in their museum i think that has helped me a lot more than like my degrees have if that makes sense (laughs) it's hard to explain those concepts (laughs) the last interview we did with a professor yeah she told us not to go into graduate studies yeah (laughs) Well, and that's like, I, I, yeah, I feel like I read an article recently that was like, I did a PhD and I regret it. <laughs> like, here's why. And like, oh, no. I mean, like, cause like, I'm not sure I would still love to do my PhD, but it, yeah, it really isn't necessary. Like, and to me, like when, if people are applying for jobs at my center, I, you know, I, I obviously look at that stuff, but I'm more so I'm interested in just like the well-roundedness of the person and and their experience whether it's education or not you know like but if you've if you've traveled a lot like that's awesome you know that means like okay you're you've been to other cultures you haven't just lived in like your one small town your whole life which like not that there's anything wrong with that but right like it's it's hard sometimes if you stay one place only experience like one culture and stuff to then try to come work in a space where where that's just not really good (laughs) ended on a low note there sorry (laughs) it's okay totally understandable that is very good advice (laughs) so like yeah i guess job prospects in your discipline uh, it's a question but it'd be so varied probably yeah there's so much you can do that like yeah, I was going to be like, what do you predict they'll look like? But I don't know if that's a very fair question to place yeah. on you. I mean, it's... How do you think everything's going to look, <laughs> Oh, it's hard. And I mean, like, within museums and stuff, too. So one of my things that I like to, to talk about with museums is, like, you know, I think a lot of people, too, when you look at a museum, you think of it as this, like, static, never-changing place. Like, it just... You know, and there are some museums that are like that. But for the most part, like, museums are and should be like changing and evolving with the with their communities with their visitors and all that like um you know and not even just to the extent of of having like virtual reality things or touch screens and stuff like technology is a is a major tool and a major asset in museums but just the whole everything about museums is kind of going through a transition and it's going to take a really long time but i am on a couple 
groups where we are, you know, talking more about like the, the reconciliation aspect and the indigenizing, decolonizing sort of aspect of museums. And so I think that in terms of like museum work, that's a big thing that's, that is happening. And, um, you know, ensuring that it isn't just, you know, people with PhDs from, you know, with European ancestry that are caring for collections, especially because in most North American museums and universities, like there are ancestral remains, there are sacred items and objects belonging to communities that need to go back to those communities. And yeah, like that's, that's all stuff that's going to be ongoing for, for a very, very long time. But it is really awesome and, and humbling enough to be a part of that. Even here in this indigenized space, like we do get to help other communities uh, and talk to other museums and, and whatnot that are sort of dealing with that stuff, whether it's in a working group capacity or, or whatnot, just to sort of uh, see how that's changing within the whole museum world. It's, it's re- really interesting. Yeah. That's such a good point because I think that's such a topic yeah. Like, right, popular topic right now is talking about the repatriation of these things. And, and we've talked about this before, how, you know, colonial museums often are, yeah. most museums are, yeah. and, you know, look at the museum in London or the Louvre or whatever, there's so yeah. many stolen artifacts there. Yeah. And so how does, what does that look like mm-hmm. for, I mean, it's different for you because, <laughs> yeah. it's, you know, it's... <laughs> And indigenous owned museum but yeah. what do you what do you see that looking like for some of those other places it's I mean it's it's hard because yeah like and I again I'm coming at it from such a place of privilege in that I get to navigate that world with the community who's going through it also and so like I can text elders I can I can call up my chief and and you know the council of Rainy River First Nations and you know talk to them about these issues and stuff so like that's such a privileged position to be able to be in but yeah like I think there are some museums that are doing it pretty well and there are others that definitely like have a ways to go um but in terms of navigating those repatriation things um oh yeah it's it's such a weighted weighted topic and there I mean there there are so many amazing discussions and articles and, and people that are working in this right now like that's one of the beautiful things I feel like about our kind of generations of archaeologists and and people working in museums is that they are doing this kind of work, doing some of the the groundwork, so to speak, I guess, and engaging with the communities and stuff. Like, because museums, they aren't just places to, like, hold artifacts and stuff. Like, I feel like that's that's what they were, and, of course, they still are. Like, collections and stuff, like, of course, that's still important, but it's that's just one aspect right like it's so much more beneficial to be working with those communities you know returning items to them if that's what needs to happen um or acting as what was i gonna say too i can't remember lost my train of thought (laughs) it's i mean and i feel like Like it's a process yeah it's it it definitely it's a process um and it's awesome to see yeah some of the work that's happening you know especially because in so many museums in north america you know, as archaeologists, like it's our own discipline that created like these collections in these museums. And a lot of the time these collections were excavated with without permission from communities, yeah. without prior and informed consent of these communities. And then have, you know, or even if, if maybe they were kind of working with the communities, they just the whole 
the whole kind of concept about why they were digging, you know, maybe there was likely like things promised to them, like, oh, we're going to excavate this and it's going to be, you know, world changing. It's going to change all of history. We're going to bring back all this information. But instead they come in, they excavate, they take the stuff back to the museum and, you know, you never hear from them again. And then 70 years later, it's, yeah, that's, that's definitely something that, yeah, I think a lot more, I mean, I feel like a lot of museums are acknowledging their colonial histories and stuff. But, um, and it's hard, right? Because every community is different too. That's a big thing as well, is that, you know, the way a community in Northwestern Ontario wants to go about repatriating stuff is going to be completely different from, you know, a community in, in Northern BC or something, right? It's, it's, so it's hard. <laughs> that, that makes me think of your role as a curator too. Like how would, as you said, you're in an indigenized space. How would, how has that changed your perspective on your job as a curator and how you approach that that's a good question like significantly and I've been again coming at this from just like this position of like yeah like I I, you know for the last decade or so I've been like working and volunteering in museums but my first curator position is here so it is in this space so it's 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 I mean again I'm so privileged to like get this kind of education in this space from the people that I work with but yeah it really has I mean, I don't know, because I don't know necessarily even what I thought being a curator would be, but I think that it is, it, it definitely is different than what it used to be, right? Like, I, I, and I feel like that's the same with, like, archaeological work and stuff like that. It's not, or it shouldn't be at least, like, a kind of its own thing. Like, you need to be, like, even myself, too, like, I work for this community, but I still, you know, I could... Ugh. I'm trying to say like it's still important to be working with the communities and stuff so even like for the basis of like exhibits and whatnot when I'm curating an exhibit or whatnot or if I want to do any changes or updates or something to the exhibits here you know I'm still going to be engaging with the community right like yes I I work here my day you know I oversee the day-to-day operations and stuff but for exhibit work and, and stuff like that, and even for the how we look after our collections here, it's always done with with the engagement of the community. And again, for us, it is a lot easier because, you know, most of my employees are band members and stuff, so that engagement happens very easily. But at some of those bigger, bigger museums, you know, it can be a little harder because obviously their collections contain items and ancestors from, uh, you know, sometimes communities all across North America, if not Canada. And, but yeah, it's really just about doing it, doing the engagement and not just sitting in your little tower, sequestered yourself doing research. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) To me, yeah, that's not the way museums are going, nor should it be. Cause yeah, it's like, you just, you need to be working with community. So yeah, I feel like really the whole like museums in general uh, are changing and have changed a lot in that sense that it's yeah it's not just like the final destination for these items and stuff like not at Mm -hmm. all it shouldn't be like um there's still value and of course like having collections and whatnot like for educational purposes but yeah it's more so like using a museum as a tool to engage with the public engage with the communities to look after this stuff in a way that is like culturally appropriate, both in education, both programming, as well as just the way that things are stored even too. I think that's something that uh, that people don't even necessarily think about is even like the way you store artifacts and stuff. That can still come from a very like colonial perspective. So even rethinking like the types of materials that you use to store things, you know, is your room where you, you um, where you house the ancestors like can people smudge in there can you put 
tobacco in there if that's something that that community needs. You know, they're sort of like, yes, it's awesome to use, you know, the museum standards of things because, of course, like we want things to to last and be preserved. But at the same time, sometimes that isn't the most important thing. Sometimes an object needs to be used. Sometimes an object needs to be taken out and smudged and, you know, just all those things that I feel like people, you know, they want to put on gloves and like, you know, everything to like touch these artifacts. And it's like, you know, is that what the community wants though, right? And like often, often it's not. Often those things need to be cared for in like a a, a completely different way. That is such a good point. It's like something I hadn't really thought of in that way. But I like so I was planning a conference last November and I was we were hoping to get an indigenous elder to like say a prayer before we started. And yeah. I was trying to work with the university to find a place if someone wanted to do a smudge that they could. And it was yeah. like impossible. Yeah. It just couldn't happen. And it yeah. was like Okay, so this space isn't even set up for for that. Like, yeah, it's yeah, yeah, and that's I mean, and that's a big thing. And like, I feel like a lot of universities. I'm just gonna be blacklisted from every Canadian university, but I feel like a lot of them are really behind in that way. Like, they don't. Oh yeah. Like yeah, exactly. It is. I mean, like, thankfully, a lot of them are starting to do you know like the land acknowledgments and stuff. But that is such a small part of of this whole bigger picture of like what they should be doing. But yeah, exactly. Because I've gone to conferences as well, where yeah, we are bringing an elder to do some sort of opening. And so yeah, we want to make sure that the space they could smudge and stuff like that. And it's yeah, it's always, it is always super challenging, because you know, they have their fire systems, and whatever. And it's like, okay, well, <laughs> that's a you problem. <laughs> like, exactly. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. <laughs> There, yeah, that's good. That's been incorporated already into this museum design and how the objects are being handled. It's really, I'm glad to hear that. And I'm curious too, just how, with all the programming you were talking about, how has yeah. COVID sort of impacted your ability to get that programming out there? Like, has it been a change for you or? Yes, very much so. And I mean, most museums are, or all museums really are, are dealing with this. So our center, we closed down in March and we actually just haven't reopened to the public, even though like, uh, you know, according to government regulations, we could have, but basically chief and council just wanted to take a more cautious approach to that. You know, our population here, like in, you know, a northern community, uh, there are a lot of vul- vulnerable people here. Um, and so they just wanted to kind of err on the side of caution. And so we've, we, I mean, we've still been doing a ton of stuff behind the scenes. And a lot of that does incorporate programming stuff. So we have been fortunate to get some external funding that has allowed us to, you know, continue with programming stuff. So we have been doing a lot of stuff on our social media pages. So we do, for example, we do Anishinaabe Moen phrase of the day posts on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And so that's been like one way of still continuing to to share the language. Um, uh, Anishinaabe Moen is, is Ojibwe for anyone who doesn't know. So yeah, still being able to share that, being able to do educational videos. So some of these are just sort of teaching knowledge and stuff, but sometimes it is like hands-on stuff. We've done videos on, you know, filleting fish, on how to make birch bark baskets, on how to bead. And we've started developing kits that we can actually drop off at people's homes or they can pick up from the center. Ah. And then, yeah, so that they can like still learn that craft, but from the safety of their home, we'll have, you know, a video component with it so they can, you know, watch watch our programmer kind of doing that activity. Um, so yeah, we have definitely switched 
to a lot of digital stuff, uh, but still keeping it hands-on. We are in the process of also just developing kind of a whole a whole series of things that we can do for the schools. Like now that all the all kids are, are back in school to some capacity, whether they're being homeschooled or physically back in school or they're doing distance learning, we still want to be able to help them out, help parents out, help teachers out. So we are developing a bunch of different programming. Some of it's going to be educational kits that they can actually rent for us. So some of that's going to include replicas of archaeological material. And we'll do programming related to that so they can rent it, you know, kind of use it however they want. We might also, we have to look into this, but we might also rent at Laddles. Uh, so for anyone who doesn't know, those are like the, the traditional um, like dart throwing kind of technology that people used to use for hunting came sort of after spears before bows and arrows just for kind of to, <laughs> to conceptualize that um and so yeah we might uh, see if, if people want to rent those we're also going to be doing beading kits and and uh, do, you know a variety of other, of other kind of hands-on kits that classes or parents and stuff can purchase or or whatnot so yeah we are it, it's definitely changing it's, it's exciting though you know just sort of switching things to be digital, but also still trying to keep things, you know, land-based whenever possible or keeping those traditional teachings and stuff. So even though we can't meet in person, there's still a lot of stuff that we can we can do and still educate people. Awesome. It's a beautiful website, by the way. Right? Speaking of the technical side of things. Thank yeah, you. it's gorgeous. <laughs> yeah, I love it. We got that redone a couple years ago. <laughs> it's so nice. I like, oh, yeah. love all the green. It's really, really oh, yeah. lovely. I'm glad. <laughs> Definitely got to put a plug out for the Mana Two Mounds Instagram and Facebook and all your social media because I love yes. the word of the day. Like yeah, I look forward to it every day. I'm always like, yay! <laughs> yeah, they've been. It's been. It's been so awesome to be a part of that. Like, of course, I don't come up with those. Like, that's a language speaker in the community, or sometimes a few of them that send those to me. I put them on a pretty picture and post them online. Um, but yeah, it's been amazing just like the feedback we've gotten from those. Yeah, I mean, some of those posts have been seen by like 170,000 people, like some like a singular post. Yeah, it's 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 just amazing, like how this language connects people. And yeah, it's been really beautiful. We get a lot of messages from people uh, just saying how they love to see it every day, how it's helping them learn their language, reclaim their language. So yeah, that's been that's been pretty amazing. So we're hoping to do more projects with with the language like we do um we do language tables as well like we haven't since covid but we do have an amazing speaker in the community and so he likes to come in and teach people the language but yeah we're hoping to do a lot more programming like based on teaching people Anishinaabe Molin so yeah that's stuff that we're gonna be kind of slowly working on for a long time Awesome. Sort of those bigger picture goals. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, we have a lot of bigger picture goals. This place is pretty amazing and there's really a lot of stuff we can do with it. So yeah, it's pretty exciting. Possibilities are endless. Awesome. That's very (laughs) exciting. Yeah. Okay. I'm not sure if you're comfortable talking about this and if you're not, that's okay. But (laughs) I was wondering if you could comment on your income at your or like salary or short place of employment and whether there's room for upward mobility and if you're not comfortable talking about that (laughs) yeah I can talk about it kind of you are comfortable (laughs) like generally or something I can share some yeah Yeah. like because yeah with museums I mean it's definitely going to differ versus if you're working in 
like a more rural museum versus uh, some of the larger ones that do see government funding. So yeah, it really, really depends. And, and again, like within museums, there's so many different kinds of jobs you can be doing, like curator and stuff is just one of them. But, you know, uh, at some of those bigger museums, they're often looking for interpreters and tour guides and catalogers and stuff like that. And I, I found throughout my career that normally those pay pretty well. Like they, I would work a lot of those during my undergrad and stuff and they'd pay... Definitely like, you know, $15 an hour up. I think some of them are, you know, even in the $20 and stuff. So sometimes for those like starter positions, like they they definitely often pay more than minimum, which is fantastic. You know, and, and if that's something you're interested in, like look, you know, check your local museums and local universities and even local chapter, local archaeological chapter. A lot of those get you know, funding from Young Canada Works and, and, and stuff. So they often are hiring student positions. So it, it's a really great way to get uh, some of that initial experience. And then yeah, if you're looking at it more as a career path, again, it's so different just based off of the museum, like where you're working, what position. But um, yeah, I mean, you can definitely do this as a career path, whether it's curator, whether you're going to be, you know, it more in the collection side of things, whether you're going to do more programming or creating educational programming, sort of whatever side you're, you're on in museums, I would say, yeah, they, in terms of salary range and stuff, like, they're often going to start... Oh, it's hard to say. I've seen some like sort of, you know, 35000 up to, I mean, bigger museums, right? Like uh, some of those people will make, you know, seventy-five to $100,000. Like it's, it's, it's such a range, but that's, that's nice too, right? Like it's, it's really kind of whatever your interest is within museums. Um, you can kind of probably find your, your niche for it and find something that will kind of suit your lifestyle. You're not going to be, you're probably not going to be rich though, <laughs> unless you're the CEO, <laughs> unless you're like the CEO of the ROM. <laughs> yeah. Not usually a thing in archaeology, anthropology, yeah. not looking for the riches. Yeah. <laughs> you do it because you love it, not because you're, yeah, going to make the big bucks. <laughs> I have that conversation with my dad on a regular basis. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah, a lot of parents are like, oh, archaeology. Yeah, that's a not accounting or you don't want to be a lawyer you sure (laughs) my friend who's a doctor they would love to talk to you like no 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 (laughs) yeah (laughs) and you do a lot of hiring in your role have you had any experiences or do you have any advice I guess for anyone that might be interested in applying for a position in a museum any common mistakes you might see or anything to sort of help them secure that dream job that they've always wanted in (laughs) museums and curation I would say your biggest mistake is just like not applying for the job looking at it and being like ah my qualifications like it's a little off so you don't apply honestly you you never know like you have we have you know we have to put those kind of like qualifications and expectations and stuff in them like that's just that's life we have to put those on the job posting but it doesn't necessarily mean that like that's we're only going to look for people that have, you know, like 20 years of experience and like 12 degrees. Like, no, like just apply. Like sometimes you're you're the mix of your experience, whether it's work related, volunteer, some of that is going to be more appealing to us necessarily than those sort of strict qualifications listed. So, yeah, really, like even if you're like, even if you don't think you're qualified, apply anyways. You know, if anything, it's going to help you update your resume, your CV and your cover letter so that, you know, it's not like two years later and you're trying to remember everything you've been doing. (laughs) Yeah. So just, yeah, not applying. Other than that, yeah, it's hard to, 
it's hard to say. And again, looking here, like we definitely prioritize trying to hire band members, community members, um, whenever possible. But yeah, I mean, looking like, so yeah, even, even here, like I, if there's somebody who's willing to learn the skills, even if they have no experience, um, that's, that's not necessarily going to be deal breaker or anything. Like people who are willing to learn stuff and are passionate about this kind of work, like that to me is, is much more enticing than, you know, just those credentials. So apply for them jobs. Good, good advice. (laughs) And, uh, Lastly, do you have any advice for someone who might be interested in your career or any sort of last nuggets of wisdom? Oh God, I don't know. (laughs) What would I say? I don't, I mean, okay, one of the things, and I was very lucky to be able to do this, but networking and stuff, and like, if you have the ability to go to conferences and stuff like that, like it really is such an amazing place to meet people so yeah and even like reaching out to people and stuff like sending emails making calls like it's terrifying especially if you're you know 17 18 just like fresh out of high school or something like figuring stuff out or even if I mean still I still I'm terrified of making phone calls sometimes but um yeah it's just really putting yourself out there because there's you know how are you going to figure out like what kind of stuff you like you may go to a conference and and see a presentation or meet somebody who does something that's you know you didn't even think of so the the networking stuff I would say is huge if you are able to do that obviously right now it's hard with COVID conferences and stuff are being postponed but whenever possible get out to those events and 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 also a big one too is in your undergrad especially, don't be afraid of your professors. (laughs) Some of them are scary and probably terrible. But if you're like me and you have really amazing professors, uh, they would love to talk to you about, honestly, everything. And they're not that scary. They want to help you. They want to work with you. They want to teach you. Uh, They want you to succeed is the biggest thing. So, And it's scary because you... you know, they're professors, they, you think that they're just like, you know, so amazing and stuff. But uh, yeah, just going, going and talking to them. And, and that's a big one, too. It'll, it'll help you a lot just getting to know them, you know, because then those are going to be the people who are your references who are going to help you with those grant applications and stuff like that. So yeah, talk to your professors. <laughs> that's a good point. <laughs> and you said you you volunteered, right? Yeah, too. that's a big one, too. That's a, actually a super good point, because I would have Actually, yeah, honestly, volunteering at the Manitoba Museum um, was such a big game changer for me because that's when I met Lee. Lee's the one that told me about Lakehead. I'd never heard of Lakehead University before. No one has. So really like, <laughs> oh, him for this whole kind of trajectory of my career. I was like, Lakehead, <laughs> where's that? But uh, yeah, volunteering, like you guys, like just crazy experience um, from doing that and, and meeting people and stuff. And then working there or volunteering there led me to then apply for jobs there and so then I worked there and then you know that's sort of how I really developed my my deep love of of museum work so yeah volunteering at museums or universities or just you know wherever um is is definitely something I would recommend do you guys have any last minute questions for Kaylee anything you're dying to know about (laughs) the one thing I mean I feel like we've kind of like wrapped it up at this point but (laughs) the one thing I wanted to ask like what does curating an exhibition look like from start to finish? Oh man, it's uh, it's a lot of work, but it's it's one of my favorite things to do. So yeah, I mean, of course, like some of the the first part of it is, of course, like the the concept and stuff. Like you know, what why are you making this exhibit? What who is it for? Sort of all those basic stuff that you really need to kind of contemplate before you actually dig in. So like, 
who the audience is going to be, you know, like, uh, yeah, just like, all of those kind of basic stuff you need to think about, like what it's going to be about, who's it for is, is a really important to kind of nail down. And then, um, yeah, and then it's just, a, I mean, a lot of research and stuff. Ideally, I mean, it really depends on the exhibit. It's it's uh, amazing when you can, you know, work with communities and stuff, kind of maybe step outside of the museum, like engage communities and, and just, you know, uh, whomever might be kind of related to, to the idea. Uh, so, for example, like we, I think it was last year, now, we curated, co-curated uh, an exhibit with the Fort Francis Museum. Uh, as well as a community member from Kuchiching First Nation. So that's just, that's really close to Port Francis. So it's another First Nations community within the Treaty 3 region. So we curated uh, an exhibit about Indigenous veterans in, in Treaty 3. And so with that one, we just did a lot of outreach with the community, talked to them, you know, we, and, and through that we were able to just learn so much more information to really make this exhibit so much more than what it could have been if it was just sort of, uh, you know, a couple of us doing it for, you know, and for with that exhibit, for example, we, when we first were researching it, we came up with maybe about 100 names or so of, of um, people within Treaty 3, Indigenous people within Treaty 3 that had served. But by the time that exhibit, you know, was up and running and a couple months in, we ended up, I think right now we have like over 300 names on that list. And that's just from people coming to see the exhibit and, you know, hey, like my dad, my grandpa, my uncle, or, you know, whatever, like, is a veteran, like, here's his information and stuff like that. So yeah, like just uh, engagement whenever it's possible is is really amazing. Awesome. Yeah, I mean, there's so much that goes into exhibits. But yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. But, but that's also kind of proof of what you were saying, where it's not static, right? Yeah. Like, it's constantly changing and you're adapting. So exactly, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's something too, if you're a curator is even, um, I mean, and again, depending on, on which museum you're at, but you know, sometimes exhibits do become dated and stuff. So whenever you can, you know, find funding and stuff and, and or engage with people to sort of upgrade those, change them, you know, like that's always really awesome too, right? Cause there, there still are cases of, of exhibits that, you know, really do need to, to, be changed and upgraded maybe their content just isn't just isn't accurate anymore right so yeah it's sort of yeah so even you know new exhibits but even sometimes if you can upgrade some of the old ones that's always a really fantastic thing too cool awesome, awesome. <laughs> i think um i have one last question yeah if, if else yeah okay it's something i've been trying with our interviews uh, <laughs> because the name of our podcast is pertaining to people <laughs> what would you say is the thing that most pertains to people? Like, what's at the core of humanity? Whew. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta end with, like, a question to stump you, of course. <laughs> there's just gonna be, like, silence. Well, <laughs> like, um, oh, that's hard. I feel like there's, like, a lot of ways you could take that. But, yeah, what's something that, like, pertains to people? Oh, man. Oh, I mean, I want to make it something happy. <laughs> Because I do, <laughs> as negative as I can sometimes be about people and stuff, like, I feel like we are all connected. <laughs> yeah, I feel like, I mean, I feel like even with this pandemic and stuff, just that, like, connectedness. Yeah. That, yeah, like, uh, that's something we all need. We all need that contact. We need each other. <laughs> that's basically, it's like. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, we're not meant to just be, Yeah. <laughs> we can't be solitary you gotta totally and i honestly think that's been a theme throughout this yeah. interview yeah it's like you've talked about community no yeah. seriously you've yeah. talked about community so much and i think that's lovely honestly yeah. <laughs> well and i think it's true like it just everything's better when you work together it's feel like it's an episode of like <laughs> sesame street but that's definitely something that like <laughs> 
working here and like coming from, for me, like having no culture, basically just like, you know, a little white girl growing up in Winnipeg and then coming here where there's like so much and being engaged in it and getting the privilege of like being invited to ceremonies and and even more so like I get you know to the point where like I've been taught how to smudge I've been taught how to put down tobacco and I get asked to do that because I am you know the day-to-day caretaker of this sacred site and so I, I I do smudge this place I do put down tobacco and stuff and like that is such a privilege to be able to learn those teachings and then be able to to do them and, and, you know, actively practice them and stuff like it's, it's, uh, I mean, yeah. So that, that whole community thing, like I, I, I'm, I, and again, I come at it from such a privileged uh, perspective, both like from my upbringing and, and ancestry and stuff, but then also the privilege of working so closely with a community and learning stuff every day from my staff. Just, yeah, it's, it, it definitely, I mean, it changes you, of course. <laughs> like it's, yeah, it's, it's pretty awesome. Yeah. Those connections are so important. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> Beautiful. Yeah. Awesome answer. Yeah. yeah. Do you have any like Instagram or upcoming events or anything that you want to plug for your <laughs> museum? <laughs> Definitely follow us on. So we have Facebook, we have Instagram, we have Twitter. Uh, I have some amazing staff here that are starting a TikTok and a YouTube channel for us and stuff. So all of those, so you can hip. find us. Yeah, I know. I accidentally called TikTok Vine and they just like read me for like, they just, <laughs> <laughs> um, but, um, it is Vine reimagined though, for real. Right? <laughs> Thank you. But yeah, so follow those. We are very active on, on all of those. Um, and those are all at Manitou Mounds. Manitou is M-A-N-I-T-O-U mounds, just all no spaces, no punctuation or anything. So follow us there. Um, in terms of stuff we have coming up, I mean, we always have a ton of programming and stuff. We do have those phrase of the day. So if you are interested in the language or know someone who who might be, you know, definitely, definitely follow us. Yeah, other than that, like we'll, we'll be continuing to post workshop videos and and various programming things as we go and as those can be developed and whatnot so we're definitely pretty pretty active on those we of course don't have any like events coming up but definitely when we when we are able to safely reopen whenever that may be come and visit us i know it's a pretty rural place but it's uh honestly it's one of the most beautiful places in canada maybe i'm biased but uh it's beautiful here there's a ton of stuff you can do here uh, yeah, like in the winter, even our, our trails, uh, we open them up for skiing and snowshoeing and stuff. So really all year round, there's, there's stuff to do here. When our restaurant is open, it's amazing. Like the fry bread and bannock here is like, can't be beat. So good. I mean, there's people, you're going to get like complaint emails now from, <laughs> from that, but I swear, uh, the, the cooks here, they've worked here since it opened. They're amazing. They, they, they can make fry bread and bannock in their sleep. So yeah, it's, it's, it's really, it's really worth seeing. Come to my museum. I'm not biased at all. <laughs> I'm <Perfect>. sold. <laughs> road trip to Northwest Ontario? Yes. yes. <laughs> For dating people, road trip. Yes. Do it. <laughs> this is our first, I think, like, out of Alberta interview, at least. Oh, that's yeah. good. <laughs> the furthest away. Nice. Nice. <laughs> yeah exciting stuff <laughs> honestly this has been a pleasure thank you so much Kaylee. <laughs> thank you for having yeah. me this has been this has been really fun my first podcast so uh 
Thank you. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> and we'll be coming to visit you as soon yes, as we can. Yes, please, you know? please do. Yes. That goes for anyone listening. Like, just like call me, shoot me an email. Like, uh, you know, whenever we are able to safely reopen, like, please come visit us. This place is amazing. Needs to be shared with everybody. So, open invitation to everyone. <laughs> Yay! Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you, ladies.